Lord Jesus, we're grateful to be able to sing to you, and we're not singing anthems into the air. You're alive to hear. You're alive to care. Lord, people came to the first service, some of them at least, brokenhearted. Many distracted, all of us burdened, Lord, for what this last 15 months has meant. Thank you that you listen and care and love and help me now to speak well of you. Not because it matters if I speak well, but because you deserve to be well understood. You deserve to be loved and trusted. And I pray that that would happen through us hearing your own words together. I pray in your name for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning and welcome back to many of you who are call this Cross Point, this Cross Point Church your uh, little family of faith. We're so glad that you're here. Let me invite you just on the front side to come back next week. We normally have two services at 9 and 10.30. We're so delighted to see so many of you. I've been standing over on the side watching them bring in extra chairs. So for all of you over there, hello, welcome all the way over there. Hello, welcome. Hi, folks in the middle. I have to stay on camera, so bad news for you. I'll be looking at you straight at you this whole time, okay? But I'm not aiming at you. I'm just delighted to open the Bible with you and tell you again about Jesus. That's all we do at Crosspoint. That's what we do every Sunday. That's what we try to do in every gathering to make people understand who He is because He really is worth your love. He really is worth your trust. If you'll keep your notes handy, hopefully you received a bulletin. All of the Scripture that I'm going to use is printed there. If you have the Crosspoint Church app, and we recommend it if you don't, the notes will have appeared on your screen before we had our first service. Keep those handy because at certain points I'm going to ask you to read the Bible with me. I also want to invite every single person here at the end of this service to make a decision regarding Jesus. Anytime you meet someone and spend time with them, you walk away having made decisions about them. Was it worth your time to talk to them? Are they worthy of your trust, or do you think they're a little bit shady? Will you see them again? Will it be worth it to arrange your life differently so that you can spend time with that person again? Jesus is very much a person. He's very much alive. That's why we're gathered here, not only on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday, to relate to Him, to love Him, to hear from Him. And what I'm going to try to do is show you an eyewitness account of the disciple who perhaps among the 12 original disciples of Jesus loved Him the most. John was the one, we're told, who is closest to Jesus in the pivotal, tragic moments of the Last Supper. It is John who hears who the traitor is that is reclining at the table with them. And the easiest thing for people thinking about Jesus who have not yet been fully convinced of His reality, of His personhood, is to wonder whether any of this is true. I understand that. And let me explain to you biblically what the stakes are here. If we're gathered to celebrate the life of a man who's still dead, this is not only pointless, it's pitiful. That's not my opinion, that's what the Bible says. If Christ is not risen, the people who believe He is are the most 
pitiable people in the entire world. You've given your life, you've given your trust, you've asked for blessings from someone who can't even hear you. But you know, that's always been the case. As I'm going to show you in the Gospel of John, all across the Gospel of John, Jesus had skeptics, Jesus had doubters, Jesus even obviously had enemies that actually put Him to death, believing that when they killed Him, that would be the end of His life and the end of the Jesus story. On this Easter, because I've been teaching the Bible for over 30 years and I've navigated a lot of Easter's, I've decided prayerfully this year, I'm going to let Jesus do most of the talking. I'm going to share with you a testimony or two of a few people around Jesus, but primarily we're going to listen to people. We're going to listen to the words of Jesus Himself. And I'm going to invite you to be persuadable by the truth of Jesus. Again, none of this is worth mentioning. We should immediately go home. We should sell this property if none of this is actually factual, but it is. People found it to be so on Resurrection Sunday, and they're still finding it to be so today, right here in our area and all across the world. For the last several years, I've been following the ministry of a former homicide detective here from Southern California. In the, now that he's an author and a scholar, a, a part-time professor, he goes by the name J. Warner Wallace. Uh, somebody I know from law enforcement knew him when he was just Jim. J. Warner Wallace was one of the founding members of the Cold Case Homicide Unit, the Torrance Police Department. He has really kind of a fascinating career. He started off as a, with a graduate degree in architecture and ended up working cold cases for Torrance PD. He decided eventually to apply his investigative chops to the case of Jesus. People kept telling Jim that Jesus was real, that it wasn't a myth, it wasn't a meme, it was an actual historical event. And a few days ago, I read this part of his testimony. Detective Wallace said, I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working just fine. My life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it's true. I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects the truth. I'm a Christian because my high regard for the truth leaves me no alternative. That is the testimony of some of the people you're going to hear today. Let's begin in the Gospel of John in the first chapter. In John chapter 1, verse 29... This is one of the few witnesses to Jesus who is not Jesus Himself because this year we're letting Jesus tell us who He is for Himself in His own words. But just as Jesus began His public ministry, a relative of His named John had, gone, had been sent by God to prepare the hearts of Israel for the one who had promised the one God had promised. For centuries, Israel had been told, you can read the prophecies for yourself in the Old Testament, that God would send His Messiah. He would send His Savior for them. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, this preacher known as John the Baptist explained Jesus' purpose. John 1, 29 says, the next day he, John, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now that is so long ago and so far away that that may not resonate with you, but remember, John the Baptist is a Jewish preacher talking to first century Jews, and that would have resonated deep in their heart because their entire lives, they had been celebrating the Passover. Year after year, the head of that household had chosen a lamb, had sacrificed the lamb. They had shared these communal meals, and it was all one long prophecy. It was all one giant picture promising that Jesus someday would come. The sacrifice of the lamb was to remind them year by year the distance between them and a God who is holy and perfect. The hardest thing for people to believe then and the hardest thing for people to believe and remember now is that God is not like us. He is the creator of everything that exists. He is your creator, and in terms of His character, He is worlds apart from any of us. He's holy and perfect and just and righteous. He's everything we would like to be in our best moments, and He's everything we fail to be through our sin and our failure. And the Passover sacrifice reminded Israel, family by family, meal by meal, year by year, that there was sin in their lives that had separated them from God. And then one day, John the preacher, John the baptizer, saw Jesus and said, look, This is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. That is categorically different from a Passover meal. This is not the lamb you bought from a neighbor. This is not the lamb you raised in your home. This is the lamb sent by God. He also is going to be sacrificed with the effect, with the purpose of taking away the sin of the world. Very shortly after that, in John's gospel, Jesus begins speaking about himself. Years ago, Bible printers decided to put the words of Jesus in red to highlight for the reader when Jesus is speaking. If you thumb through the gospel of John in a red-letter edition, as they call it, you're going to discover that it's a lot of red. It is mainly Jesus speaking. That is because John, an eyewitness the man who ran to the tomb, the man who was careful to tell you if you notice that he outran Peter. Isn't that a funny little detail? Men can't help talking trash about their athletic abilities even on Resurrection Sunday, on the first Resurrection Sunday. John is telling you his eyewitness experience with Jesus, and because of their closeness, because of their friendship, John, more than the other three Gospels, lets you listen to Jesus himself. John has more original material than any of the Gospels with all of them put together, and Jesus is going to begin to explain himself. John was very careful. He was actually stylistic in his choices. He's going to tell you at the end of the gospel that there are many more things he could have written, but these were written so that you would believe in Jesus. And in his selectivity, he's going to tell you seven miracles that Jesus performed. He's going to isolate you for seven different times that Jesus spoke of himself in the first person and using the language of God himself from God appearing to Moses way back in Exodus 3, Jesus is going to explain, this is who I am, and I want you to hear them. I've only selected five of the seven, but I want you to hear Jesus explaining himself. Jesus said... I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Two chapters later, in John chapter 8, facing groups of people who hated him, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To an equally skeptical crowd that is now turning murderous, two chapters later, Jesus said, first, I'm the door of the sheep, and they didn't understand him, so he was more explicit. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later, at the, friend, at the house of his beloved friends, his friend Lazarus had died, and Jesus explained to that family, I am the resurrection and the life. Catch this promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Just before dying, Jesus said to his disciples in his last extended teaching to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's five of the seven times that Jesus spoke. I mentioned the other one where Jesus said he was the door that the sheep would come into. The other one comes a chapter later when Jesus explains to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, hear that collected witness of Jesus explaining himself. Because pastors often labor, and I certainly am. I'm prayerfully laboring. I've been praying for weeks about this moment. How best and how most clearly I could explain to you who Jesus is. Hence the decision to let him mainly speak for himself. Listen to this again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can you think of anyone in human history who could credibly say that? Let's just have a little thought experiment for a second. If I stood on this stage in front of this camera on this Sunday and I said to you, folks, I have good news I've been studying, I've been praying, I've really been dedicating myself to God. Here's what you need to know. I am the bread of life. What would you do? You'd do what you're doing right now. You'd laugh, and if you had, if I kept at it, and you'd have some self-respect, and you'd leave, and you'd be right to walk out on me. There's not one human being who can credibly say these things, not one. You can think of the person you most admire in life, the person you most admire in history, and if they're worth your admiration, they would be the first to tell you that they cannot possibly say a single thing that Jesus said here. Every one of these statements regarding his character, regarding his identity, is spoken not for his benefit, but for ours. He's explaining to us who he is as the Son of God so that we will know what he can do for us. He is the bread, not the kind that you have on the table. The context there is he has fed a multitude. People have come to him looking for more food, and he points them to their bigger spiritual need. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the light of the world. Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll never be in darkness again. I mean, who can make these promises? 
They speak to His glory. They speak to His identity as God. Every chapter in the Gospel of John, in its 21 chapters, I read the whole thing again. Every single chapter has at least one claim from Jesus to be God or a miracle in it. Every single chapter, on every page, He's telling you who He is. The most telling and perhaps the most famous comes in John 14, verse 6. If you have it in front of you, or maybe you even know it by heart, would you read that with me? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As I reread that verse a few weeks ago, I was reminded of a cross-country flight I took seated beside a man who told me he was a doctor. He had had a near-death experience, and from the other side of his experiences, he had some hallucinations or visions or dreams, whatever you want to call them. I'm not qualified to say, and he wasn't in a state to evaluate exactly what was happening, but he came out with the conviction from, his, from that traumatic experience that no matter what you believed, even if it was conflicting, even if it was hateful, even if your professed belief was evil, that all would eventually be with God. All would be welcomed by Him. As I started to explain to him who Jesus was and why I believed Jesus' account of Himself, He told me, your views are so narrow. And all I could think to tell him was that my views are just as narrow and just as wide as Jesus Himself. He's the one making these claims. And the point of the resurrection is, in resurrection, Jesus proved that He was not a self-important, self-inflated teacher. He wasn't a madman. He wasn't having religious delusions. When He rose from the dead, He proved everything He said about Himself. Of all the things that Jesus prophesied and promised, perhaps the most important is in the next verse that's on your notes, John 14, verse 19. Jesus knew explicitly, He knew well He was headed to death, and He said, yet a little, yet a little while and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Here's the promise, because I live, you also will live. And the disciples were so confused and so doubtful. Jesus went to the cross, and it was a horrifying scene. They didn't understand it at the moment, but the promise and the purpose that John the Baptist had explained earlier, Jesus fulfilled it on the cross. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus has been laboring on the cross for hours, and at the very end, John gives this eyewitness account of his death. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. I want you to see that even in the agony and the torture of the crucifixion where most men died of asphyxia, and exposure and blood loss, even now, Jesus is very self-consciously fulfilling all the promises and all the prophecies that were read in the synagogue Saturday by Saturday. He said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. The crowd cruelly gave Him something bitter to drink. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Two days ago on Good Friday, I explained the significance of this statement from the cross. It's a single word in the Greek New Testament. Archaeologists have found it written, handwritten over ancient receipts, and what it means in the first century when that word appeared on a document, it meant that there was no more debt to cover that no payment was due, that everything was paid for, we would say that it is paid in full. Why is Jesus speaking this way? Because he's dying for sin and he's dying for sinners. The one who promised that he could make people so that they would never hunger or thirst again, so that they would have the light of life, that he would lay down his life for them as a good shepherd, that the one who promised that he himself was the resurrection and the life and the way and the truth and the life who alone could bring them into God's presence is now paying the debt of their sins. And here I am convinced it is not for lack of evidence because Jesus has given ample evidence in history and he offers ample evidence even now to modern day seekers like Detective Wallace. The main problem that people, that keeps people away from Jesus is they do not understand the depth of their need. I do not understand until I come to Jesus and I humble myself before Jesus the reality of sin. And the reason is simple. When it comes to making moral assessments, we all think that we're doing better than we are. And we only do that because we compare ourselves with each other. Christians are often criticized as hypocrites. Some people don't believe in Christ because they've met so many Christians. Maybe you're here somewhat grudgingly just to indulge your family or your friend and your disappointment really has not been with Jesus. You haven't been giving Him much thought. You've just been so bothered by the example of Christians that you're not thinking much of Christ. Let me help you with that, if I may. When you say that Christians are hypocrites, you're absolutely right. That's what took Jesus to the cross. Christians are liars. And so are you if you're not a Christian. That's the reality of the world we live in. If I ask you sincerely, have you ever lied, what would you tell me? Everyone would admit it. Now, most people don't walk around brokenhearted and feeling bad about themselves because they are habitual liars when it suits their purpose, maybe intentionally, maybe maliciously. Other times things just slip out to avoid embarrassment, to improve your image. Why aren't people burdened by this? Because we're continually comparing ourselves, not with God, but with each other. You let me choose the guy I compare myself to, I'm going to feel good about myself every single day. The reason Jesus is on the cross is He is dying to cover the sin of lying and much more, the sin of lusting, the sin of hatred, the sin of division, the sin of gossiping, the sin of envying. Have you ever thought about how much of our economy is driven by simple envy? How much people strive to buy and achieve and display things just so they can stick it to somebody else? Somebody said we spend money we don't have to impress people we don't like. 
That's true. Every time I mention that, everybody laughs because we recognize ourselves in that, that which is rooted in the chief of all sins, which is pride. It's always just below the surface in every human being. That is what Jesus is taking to the cross. And you could see for your need for Jesus this morning, if you would forget about me for a second and compare about, forget about the other comparisons, because man, you compare yourself with your brother-in-law maybe, if you compare yourself with your ex, if you compare yourself with your boss, you're a pretty great guy, you're a pretty great gal, but forget about all them and imagine yourself in the presence of a holy God who knows everything about you, because that's the reality of your condition. You're not a biological, ecological accident. You are not here by random chance. You were made by a holy, purposeful, unbelievably intelligent and wise God because He wanted to enjoy you and you to enjoy Him forever. And what stands in the way is what makes every human being falter and fail. What stands in the way is sin. And if you'll just take a quiet moment and consider yourself and the things that your conscience daily tells you about yourself in the sight of a holy God, you'll see your need for Jesus. In one of the most quietly frightening verses in the Bible, God is described in the book of Hebrews as the one to whom all things are naked and open to His sight. What that means is that whatever you think you're getting away with, you're not getting away with it. You can get away with it here. You can fool us all. You can fool everybody. You can even deceive yourself. But the God who made you and loves you knows everything about you, and His standard is perfection. And the reason Jesus, at the risk of His own life, explained Himself in the terms of God Himself His entire life, and then on the cross said, it is finished, is He wanted to take your sins to the cross and cover them and finish them. And the only thing that stands between you and having His life, having your forgiveness, is your trust. But there are skeptics, always skeptics, even one of the disciples. Look at the last bit of John 20, the part of the story I didn't read to you. John 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. I want you to see that Thomas had a nickname that he, people gave him in his life. You know him by another nickname. What is it? Here's why. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Easy to find fault with Thomas. But I don't find much fault with him, really because I've known what you've always known. Dead people stay dead. See, because these things happened so long ago and so far away, sometimes people think that first century people were just stupid and would easily believe that someone could rise from the dead. May I suggest to you that people in the ancient world were more acquainted with the reality of death than we are? We sanitize it. 
We speak of passing away. I've officiated so many services where, frankly, sometimes the person we're there to mourn and to remember looks better on the day of their funeral than they did in the last few years of their life. We've made death almost elegant. Jesus didn't die such a death. Thomas had seen him struggle for breath and gasp and die as he bled out. So he said, I don't believe you. I need to see him. I need to handle the wounds of the bot on his body that I saw that dealt him death. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Listen, here's where you can come into the story. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas needed proof, and Jesus gave it to him. Jesus offers you proof as well. The proof of His Word, the proof of His Spirit, the proof of your conscience that is continually telling you that you're not only falling short of your standards, you're mostly falling short of God's own standards. All of this was written, all of this was done on your behalf. Please let me make a final plea before I invite you to receive the blessing that Jesus pronounced over those who would not physically see Him but would still trust Him. He's very much alive. He has very much covered your sin. And make no mistake, I'm not inviting you to become religious and to try harder. That's the trouble with religion. Your conscience is always telling you that you're falling short. You're doing some things the best you know how. As one guy told me, I try to do the right thing for the right reasons. I might even do some things that people would consider religious or would consider spiritual. I'm always trying to catch up. Here's the problem. Nobody will show you the scoreboard. You don't know the debit that your sins are creating and you have no idea whether the good things you do are giving you any kind of credit. That whole system is broken and fallacious. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus offers his life for sin and sinners and invites people based on the reality of his person to simply believe him and even pronounces a blessing on you who have not seen but have believed. Jesus can give life to anyone who believes him. Listen to John's conclusion as he invites you to believe in Jesus the way he did. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Here's where you come into the story. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in His name. That's the stakes. That's the offer. I'm not inviting you to join a religious group. I'm not inviting you on a crusade for moral self-improvement. I'm inviting you to face the reality that you have fallen short of God's standard, to consider the reality of the one who has done most of the teaching here, to consider the witness of Jesus, and to join Thomas upon the proof that Jesus has given you to say with Thomas, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. I'm putting you in charge. 
I'm giving up on my doubts. I'm giving up on my own beliefs that have rejected you. I am going to turn from myself and my own ideas. I'm going to entrust myself to you. I did that when I was a child. Years later, I went through a season of doubt, and I tried to walk away from the Lord, but in His mercy, He held me fast, He held me strong, and He has always brought me back to Himself. He's a good Savior. I cannot possibly brag on Him enough and recommend Him enough to you. If you are not entirely certain that He is your Savior, that the fullness and the totality of your sins have been paid and absorbed by His righteous character, that when you close your eyes someday in death, you will wake up to eternal life. If you're not absolutely certain of that, I'm asking you and inviting you in the name of Jesus. I'm not a salesman. I'm not on commission. I'm just a messenger telling you this good news to invite you to say with, G- with Thomas that Jesus is your Lord and your God and that you will trust in His name. And according to John, who knew Him best, you will have from Jesus life. Let's think about it and let's decide. Could I invite you to pray with me right now? Let me speak, first of all, to the Christians. Thomas said more than perhaps many of us realize. He said, you're my Lord and my God. In other words, I'm all in. My first invitation this morning is to Christians, to people who are already following Jesus, to acknowledge Him again and afresh with new surrender that He's your Lord, He's your God. You're not going to run the show. He is. You're going to walk with Him. You're going to trust Him. Stop trusting yourself and disobeying Him in the small areas where you have not yet learned to believe Him. And my second and urgent invitation is to you who don't know for certain that Jesus is your Savior. I can't save you. I can't do a thing for you. I've done all I can do. I've told you about Him. My invitation right now is that you would humble yourself. Remember those sins. Remember your secret life. Remember your troubled conscience. Those are the things that stand between you and a holy God. I'm going to invite you to take those things to Jesus. Tell Him you're sorry and ask Him, who said it is finished, to finish those things on your behalf to cover your sins. He can do it for anyone. He was willing to do it for everyone. He will only do it for those who trust Him. How else could it be? How else could you have a loving relationship if you didn't willingly surrender? And He's at work in the lives of some of you, I'm trusting, online and in person. He's dealing with you right now. So let me invite you to pray to Him using your own words, if you wish. There's no magic words. There's just a move of transfer, a transfer from trusting yourself to trusting Him. Just tell him, Jesus, I'm sorry for sin. I know I've fallen short of God's standard. I know I'm not holy. My sins are on my conscience. I see it. I feel it. I'm troubled by it. I'm sorry. I'm turning away from those things now, and I'm turning myself over to you. I'm willing to call you with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Please save me. Take my life. Be my boss. Give me the life you promised. 
And Jesus, I ask in these final moments, whoever needs to trust you in that way, that they would do so right now if they haven't already. That in these moments of silence, they would turn to you and say, Jesus, I believe, please save me. And help those of us, Lord, who already follow you to say with Thomas every day of our lives, you are our Lord and you are our God. If you've trusted Jesus this morning, I would invite you, if you're here in person, to fill out the card that's in your brochure, that's in your uh, church bulletin. Give us your name, your email address, your phone number, whatever you'd like to give us. Just identify the step that you've taken. My prayer is that every person here would take another step toward Christ. And if you've trusted Jesus as Savior this morning, that you would let us know. We want to pray for you. We won't bother you. I already promised you that. I just want to know that, to celebrate with you and with your permission to help you and encourage you in taking those first steps with Christ. It can make all the difference to have somebody help you. If you're watching online, you can send us a text to 714-868-7258 with just his name, the name Jesus. I'll be over at the hello table in just a little bit. I'd love to greet you if you're here for the first time, especially if you've trusted Christ today. I'd love to say hello and congratulations. Now, would you stand with me? We're going to sing a final song of praise.